we've got a trustworthy saying at Reforming Church that we've been using this recent season. We had a season, it's been difficult for everyone, and so during our series in the Fruit of the Spirit, we had a welcome to church before our call to worship, which you've heard before, you've heard this morning, we're soon going to see a new one come, but it starts with, I'm often wrong. Now, we put that welcome to church on the front page of our website. So you may have seen it, a little video with just me, which I made on my phone. It's pretty indie, pretty basic, saying why, why this is our welcome to church. A few days ago, on my day off, a Friday, I had to go to Melbourne for a medical appointment. And because it's my day off, and we're trying to make it a day off kind of thing, we had lunch at a cafe, and I try and not look at my phone on my day off. You know, you all know the feeling. But for some reason it was on, it wasn't on vibrate, and I hear ding, it's like, oh, email. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm an inbox zero kind of person, I just want to make sure I'm up to date. So I, I, I shouldn't have, but Amy had gone to order, and I look at the email, and someone on the internet, I don't know who, um, they sent a message because of that post, that front page, and the message was simply this, you're always wrong. And I really wanted to reply and say, thank you, I agree. Like, yes. See, I think the natural inclination of our society is to get our hackles up, isn't it? No, no, I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. And My actually natural inclination wasn't to do that. I actually wanted to say to this person, I don't know, it's just a, it's a, a random message, but I wanted to say... You're actually, like, you're on the track. You, I agree with you. In fact, I wanted to explain, because I like to explain things, if you know me. I like, I'm a bit of an explainer. I wanted to say, when I wrote that Welcome to Church back a few months ago for that series, I wanted to say I'm always wrong. Because I like alliteration. I wanted it to be, I'm always wrong, I'm always weak, and I'm always welcome. I wanted the word to be always. Friend, whom I don't know, someone on the internet. I wanted it to be always. The only reason I changed it to often is it's because of John 1. You see, I am always wrong, except I want to be able to say, I need to be right about something, right? Like, I can't be always wrong, and especially about God. It's, it's kind of not okay to be cruising through life going, I'm happy to be always wrong and everything, including about God. I've got no idea, I'm always wrong. And that's why I said often wrong, because I am in my life on many things, on many opinions, on many subjects, often, 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 often wrong, 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 wrong. I'm sorry it needs to come out of my mouth a lot. I apologize, etc. But when it comes to God, I really, like it's life and death stuff for me, I really need to be right. Not that I'm right, but I need to get it right. I need to understand rightly who God is because it is the very thing of eternity in the balance for me. And that's why, friend, someone on the internet, it's not always wrong, it's often. It's as close as I can get to being real, and as real as it gets, I want to be really understanding who God is. I want to be right on that. I don't want to stay in the dark. See, when John pens his gospel According to John, his, his gospel account of Jesus' life, he writes this prologue, this opening, and he writes about the truth, a true, 
testimony about who God is, particularly in Jesus Christ. He writes about the truth. We, we see this in verses 1 to 8 in this prologue. Now, here's, a, here's a, a picture of where we're going as a church into next year. And we're going to be walking with John as we go. If you go to our website, you go to the What's On section, you'll see actually the, uh, the plan for our sermon series going up to mid-year next year. Next year, God willing, I say God willing because James says you should say that, God willing, we'll be in John and Genesis, two big important books. And God willing, we'll see as we go through John, the first half of John, firstly there's a prologue which we're in today, then the first half we see in chapters 2 to 10 is seven signs that point to who Jesus is. On Good Friday, we're going to land in John 10, where Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And then on Risen Sunday, we're going to be in John 11, where he raises someone from the dead. And then later in the year, we'll continue through John as we look at Jesus' own death, resurrection. And in the whole book, John writes with purpose. I want you to go with me to the end of John and see... Firstly, why we say this is a gospel according to John, and secondly, why he writes. So if you go to John 21, we actually see right at the end, John self-identifies. He gives clues all the way through his book, but in John 21, and people say, oh, how do we know that John wrote this, and which John are we talking about? But in John 21, we see in verse, uh, well, we can start in verse 20, John 21 verse 20, there's a moment where Peter, another close disciple, he turns and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that is where John is saying, it's me, I'm John. And, and how do we know it's the disciple whom Jesus loved? He loved all his disciples. Well, John is just saying humbly, Peter turned and he sees me, the one who's leaning, who leaned up against Jesus at the supper, and he said, Lord, um, Peter says to him in verse 21, what about this man? What's going to happen with this man? And Jesus says to him, look, if it's my will, he remains until I come, blah, blah, blah. The point Jesus is saying is, this John, it's not for you, Peter, to know what's going to happen in his life. You worry about your own life, and Peter's wanting to do the whole what's going to happen to one of us, each of us. But John self-identifies here in John chapter 21. And he says, this is me who writes this book, verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So John is self-identifying here, this is my book. And then John says, go back to chapter 20, why he writes. In John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the reason John writes. John writes this book, he writes this prologue, so that you may see who Jesus is, and by seeing, believe who he is, and may have life in his name. This is the reason he writes. You see, different to the other gospel accounts, whereas Matthew, Matthew takes us to uh, the Old Testament and the genealogy and then takes us to the manger. Um, you see, Luke does a similar thing. Mark takes us to Old Testament prophecies. John takes us to eternity past. It's, as you read John 1.1, 1, 1, it's almost like you're 
It's like going to a Star Wars movie, even the latest one. So you go to a Star Wars movie, what do you see at the beginning? It's the prologue. And that prologue is connected to everything that's gone before. So as you read John 1, 1, how do you see, do you see the connections? Go back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with the Word. Do you see the connection that John is making in his prologue to everything that's gone before, to every series and episode, every event in the scriptures, to everything that's gone before? Do you see what he's doing in John 1, 1? Do you see where this is connected, friends? Where have you heard the phrase, in the beginning before? It's in Genesis. Genesis 1.1. John is saying right out the gate, right off the bat, my gospel account of Jesus is connected to everything else in salvation history, is connected to Genesis 1.1. And in the beginning was the word. See, whereas contemporary Greek thinking sees Logos, the Word, as this kind of force, like a Star Wars force, that kind of orders the universe. You know, people talk today, they pray to the universe. Oh, the universe has given me this, the universe has given me a new job. People kind of actually believe that there's some sort of impersonal force. And in Greek thinking, that was not uncommon. There was this kind of impersonal force that held things together, the Logos, John takes that thought and says, actually, you're groping in the dark, you're guessing, but God has taken the guesswork out of it because the Logos, the Word, is not an impersonal force, but he is personable. He is the Word who is God himself. Verses 1 and 2 in John 1 It's like looking into deep water in John 1. When you come to John 1 in the prologue, you're looking into deep, deep water, and yet the water is clear. It's deep and it's clear. God is in the business of making himself clear. God does not want to muddy the water on how he wants to reveal himself. And we see in verse 2, this word who is God Look how personable he is. Verse 2, because he's described as a he. Not it, he. Just like how God reveals himself in Genesis. He, the word, in verses 4 to 5. He is life and he, this life, is light for humanity. The light is opposed to the darkness of our world. He is opposed to the darkness of our world. And just notice how this person of God is described. He's described as the Word. I mean, think about this in Genesis. How does God create the world? By his Word. How does God reveal himself to people in Genesis? By his Word. How does God save and reconcile fallen people in Genesis and beyond? It's by his Word. Friends, what is the clearest way that you can get to know someone? by their words it's funny isn't it like you you look at someone and you think you know them people might have people watching as their kind of pastime you sit on a bench and you watch people you actually don't know them people say to me all the time you know such and such you know from like that other town or perhaps in Ben you know it's like well I can say I know of them but I've never actually met them I never heard them speak so I don't know them 
often you say to people, you know, perhaps at church, uh, would you like a coffee? You, you look at someone and think, you look like a coffee drinker. And then surprise, surprise, they say, oh, I don't like coffee. What? I don't know you. <laughs> How do you get to know someone? You've got to listen to them. They need to speak. The way in which you know someone is they need to reveal themselves to you in their words. They need to be the one revealing. You can't be the one guessing. It won't work. And it's the same with God. People want to guess about God all the time. I think God is like this. How would you know? You'd have to be equal to him to guess that. The only way you can actually know what God is like is if you listen to him. To say, I think God is like this, is to do what Israel do in the wilderness. I'm going to fashion my little image of God over here. I think God looks like this. I think he acts like this. I think his character is like this. I built my God. No, no, no. Friends, dear church, to keep away from idolatry is to hear God speak. And how do you hear God speak? We say it almost every week. I missed it this morning, didn't I? How do you God speak? And Russ says, blah, 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 blah. We say those words. How do you hear God speak? By opening a Bible. You want to listen to God? You hear him speak here. Here is where he's speaking to you. Here is where he's revealing himself personally to you. Packed into these few verses is a theology of God's self-revelation. It's a doctrine of revelation. It's a doctrine of how God has revealed himself in the scriptures and revealed himself personally in the word and the word we see later made flesh. Now, in the Gospel of John, we see clearly that the word is Jesus Christ. The word is Jesus Christ. He is the word. And to make that clearer, uh, we see in verses 6 to 8 that... When John writes this gospel, he writes about another John, uh, not the writer of the gospel, but there's a few Johns. We have this at church, don't we? There's a few Michelles. And you've got to work out, which Michelle are we talking about? There's Michelle, the Rayson, and there's Michelle, the Bailey. There's Michelle, the Kai. Sometimes some people just call her Kai, and she's okay with that, I think. That's what John's doing. He's saying, look, I'm writing this gospel. I told you that in chapter 21 as you do the read-through. I'm writing it. There's another John, and he's not John the writer. He's John the baptizing one because he was known for baptizing people. Big thing he did. He's known for a few other things too, but to make sure we know who the word is and the word is Christ, John writes, there was this man, verse 6, sent from God. His name was John, the other John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light we see in verse 8, but came to bear witness about the light. This is John the Baptist. Point is this, friends. This Christmas, we have an opportunity to see truth and testimony about who the Word of God is, who Jesus is, and truth matters all the more. Today, truth is not seen as very fashionable. It's not seen as desirable. In fact, sometimes the truth makes us uncomfortable. We'd rather just ignore truth that makes us stand or fall on something, or in John's Gospel, on someone. Reforming Church, 
our new neighbours to our church, so here's us, 17 Victor Road, our new neighbours, three doors down on the corner, are building a building. We are the closest church in this city to that new uh, mosque, to that building being built. We are the closest church to a new community of people who will be worshipping. But they're worshipping a different God. They're not worshipping the true and living God, not the God who has revealed himself truly. That is not fashionable to say. It's not desirable, it's not comfortable, it makes people uncomfortable. But I want you to hear me clearly. We as a church are going to love our neighbours because that's what we do. I've met some of them. We love them. Christians love our neighbours. And we love them so much that we can even have conversations where we disagree. Who would have thought? Now, in our day and age, disagreeing in conversation is not fashionable at all, but we can do that. We can love them and disagree and say, actually, Jesus is God. For our new neighbours will not like hearing that, that Jesus is God. We want to say he is God. And life and death stands on that. You might have met other neighbours. In our 14 years of being in Castlemaine and Bendigo, we've met uh, a group of people that belong to, at best you could call it a Christian cult, but it's not Christian. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses. And can I tell you, and you have met them, Jehovah's Witnesses are the nicest people you could probably meet at your front door. Like, aren't they? Like, they can receive a lot of heat from people, but Jehovah's Witnesses are actually incredibly nice. And they can be incredibly nice neighbours. When we were living in Castlemaine and now in Bendigo, in fact, we've had them door knock our home and we've invited them in and then shared with many couples morning tea after morning tea after morning tea every Friday. And two couples now we've done this over time and we've loved them. They're, they're, they're wonderful friends. And yet, we disagree with them. Because Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe Jesus, the Word, is God. In fact, if you've ever had a conversation with them, they'll usually tell you, in John 1, in the first few verses, the Greek says, using uh, the Greek language, they'll say, the Greek says, it doesn't say he was God, it says he was a God. Now, the problem with that is, a few things is a problem with that. One is, if they're telling someone at the front door and they haven't studied New Testament Greek, that can sound like, oh, you, well, you must know, you've won. But here's the first problem, I think, associated with that. I'm yet to meet a member of this Christian cult who actually reads New Testament Greek. I've yet to meet one who actually engages with New Testament Greek. Because when you, they say that, here's the easy answer. The easy answer is, actually, John doesn't use a definite article, the... Yes, he uses an indefinite article, A. You don't have to go this. Look, I can write it down later. Point is, John doesn't use that style consistently throughout his gospel. In fact, here's the second thing. You've only got to keep reading the Bible and see that John doesn't consistently use that language. If you read Colossians, the whole Bible, for you can see Jesus God. But let's go closer to home to John. In John's gospel alone, right, in John's Gospel, if you go towards the end of the Gospel, you see Thomas meets Jesus. What does Thomas say when he sees the risen Jesus? Anyone know? 
What does Thomas blurt out? After saying, I will not believe, I will not believe, Jesus appears in the room and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Point that out to our dear friends. Look, you don't even have to go that far. You can come right back to John 1. The Greek, I think, in short, clearly shows Jesus is God. But even then, you don't need to read Greek. Read the English. Read through. Verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness not overcome it. Is this talking about someone who's a God or just an ordinary person? This is the language of God, friends. You don't need to pretend to read Greek even. You can just read this. This is the language. Jesus, the word, is God. Truth matters, friends. It matters. Because if you don't believe Jesus God, you don't have salvation. Now, people might push back on that. Whoa, whoa, Russ, but they're nice. Then They are incredibly nice, and I love them. But Jesus says in John 14, in this gospel, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no side door, friends. There's no nice door. There's no, well, you're really nice people. There's no other way but to believe that Jesus is God in flesh, come to save flesh from fallenness in our flesh. There is no other way than through Jesus Christ, who is God himself. Nice people need saving too. In fact, friends, and we've said it before at church, not only do I need to confess my unrighteousness, I need to confess my self-righteousness. My niceness can be a barrier between me and God if I think my niceness makes me okay with God. It's not what makes me okay with God. It's Christ's righteousness that makes me okay with God. It's not mine. It's alien to me, foreign to me. It comes from him who comes to me, which is what we see. Secondly, to all who receive him and believe in him. God coming into the world is God's rescue plan from the beginning. And notice this, he comes into the world who doesn't want him. God makes the world, he makes the stars, and then he comes in the world to save the world, and we don't want him. He comes to his own. Israel, Israel doesn't receive him. In John's gospel, he employs a literary technique, many scholars think. I was going to briefly tell you about it, but I don't want you to worry about it or focus about it. It's called a chiasm. Now, if you want to look up chiasm, look it up later. But chiasm, the word chi, comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X or a cross, right? You might think chi, rho, that sort of thing, sort of in, in church sort of symbolism history. A chiasm is a literary tool where the writer... Instead of writing the pointy end of his text at the end, it's in the middle. And how it works is this. The start of the text and the end of the text matches. So John 1, verse 1, matches verse 18. And then verse 2 and verse 17. And verse 3 and verse, you know, onwards it goes. And that's how it goes until you get to the pointy end. The pointy end of this text is verse 12. And in verse 12, we see a crossover on that chiasm. The pointy end, the middle here is the point here, and here is the reason God comes into the world. Do you see it in verse 12? 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God comes into the world not just to play nice, not just to love people, which he does. He comes into the world and the world disagrees with him. How about that? The world says, I've got another way, thanks, Jesus. He comes into the world so that those who would receive him would believe in him. And what happens for those who do? You become children of God yourself. God comes into a world of darkness and death to rescue us. And how does he do it? Thirdly, we see he becomes flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14. Here's where we've seen the progressive revelation of God throughout the scriptures unfolding in human history. That the word who is God, who created all things, who's revealing himself as the word, God's self-revelation as a person, is a person who is flesh. In the Trinity, we believe that God is one God, three persons. He is of one substance, but three distinct persons. There's a lot of church history and creeds and councils that went into us having that simple statement. We are going to say a new creed today in the Lord's Supper, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed really highlights the triune nature of God and who Jesus is. Truth matters, and it matters we understand what we believe about him. But here's what we also see. Why does the word come? He comes to rescue us, we'll be children of God. Now, how does he do that? He becomes flesh. Well, that's great, but why does he become flesh? We pick up how important this is when we look at the word in verse 14, that is the word in our English Bibles, dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, what's fascinating about this, and you may have already come across this, what's fascinating for us to see now if you haven't, is the word that John uses for dwelt. So he could have used a lot of different words. Reside, lives with, hangs out with, chillin'. I don't think he had that word, probably. Maybe he did in, in the Greek New Testament vocab, but the word he uses is significant. It is literally pitches a tent or tabernacles. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you see it? This is what we read Exodus 25. We read Exodus 25 and you must have been thinking, what has this got to do with today? Exodus 25 and all that imagery. What was all that imagery for in the tabernacle building, by the way? Do you know? You see, when God saves his people Israel out of Egypt and then he says, I'm coming to dwell with you. When was the last time God dwelled with people? When was that? And it was all okay and they didn't die. When was the last time God dwelt with people and they didn't die? It was in the garden. And now God says, I'm coming to dwell with you, but you need to build a tabernacle, which becomes eventually the temple, for me to do that. It's going to need some walls and a thick curtain. But do you notice the imagery that's 
embroidered into the tabernacle walls. Do you notice the things as Ryan read? The things they make. They make a lampstand. What does the lampstand look like? It looks like a tree. A perfect tree. The imagery of the tabernacle is the imagery of the garden. It's going back to the garden. God is going to dwell with us again. But this garden's a bit different. It's got walls. It's got a thick curtain. He will dwell with us, but we can't see him face to face. We can't go into the Holy of Holies. He'll be with us. We just can't get that close. Why? Because we'll be killed. We can't be in the presence of God and live. Not like that. It was only for the priest taking the blood of a sacrificed animal to where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. We could not behold him. We could not be with him. And here's where it gets wonderful. We can't go to him, but he comes to us. This is the depth and breadth of John 1. God comes to me, to you, in a world gone wrong, and he gives you the right to become a child of God. I am always wrong. There's always sin in my life. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And God comes to wrong people and says, I'm going to give you the right to become children of God. He comes to us. Reflect on God's rescue for you. Eden is where God dwelt with us and we can't go back. We can't go in. We can't go back there. What guards Eden to this day? It's a cherub with a flaming sword. We can't go back because of our sin. I'm always wrong and God is a consuming fire of rightness. We can't go to him, but he comes to us. And you see this in John 1.14. He tabernacled among us. He became the place of sacrifice in the person of Christ himself. And how does he come? He comes as a vulnerable baby. As a baby. He comes from eternity into maternity. A baby that can be held. God comes into human form. He can be embraced. And you won't die. He becomes a man in flesh that can die. In fact... If you know the end of the story in John's Gospel, he comes into our world as a man who can be killed to be killed. Even as a perfectly innocent man on a cross, dying in the place of sinners to save us, and he has risen as king, the darkness tried, friends. It tried, but it did not overcome him. And so now we can become children of God. What does this mean now for you and me? It means everything. It means everything. We wonder how much time we can give to hearing this message. And I think some of us who are seasoned might think, well, it's, it's a bit longer today. This is everything for our eternity. 
Jesus Christ comes into the world on a rescue mission. He comes to give you the right to be a child of God. And there's two options now. The option is you either receive him or you don't. When it's Christmas time and someone gives you a gift, you've got two options with that gift. What are your options? You either receive it and say thank you, and it changes your life in some small or large way, or you don't, and you say no thank you. There are millions of people around the world right now saying no thank you. That we pray and by the will of God that will change. But friends, there is no halfway. There's no, you can't re-gift it. Put it in the drawer to re-gift someone else next Christmas time. There's no lay-by. You either receive him now and believe in him or you reject him. There's no in-between. You certainly can't be ambivalent towards him. And what does this mean now if you have received him? If you have believed, you are now, by the rights given to you by God, a child of God. Christmas time always reminds me how wrong I am. Why? How? Does it do this to you too? Because everything is meant to be so perfect. Like you look at the ads on TV and the caroling and the songs and everything, that the picture that we're being sold is that you need to be perfect. Christmas is going to be perfect and it's going to be wonderful. But then you have that family member come, you know, your Uncle Bruce, everyone's got a kind of Uncle Bruce that sort of makes things a bit awkward, if not awful. And then you realise, I make things awkward and awful and I'm not perfect. And, And... Christmas reminds me how wrong I am. But it also reminds me how I'm rescued. How I get to be a child of God. It reminds me how he gives what other religions don't give, other worldviews don't have. This Christmas, as you experience weariness, do you know that God did too? Jesus Christ got tired. He understands you. Are you lonely this Christmas? Jesus felt lonely. He was alone. Have you been betrayed? Jesus knows what that particular pain feels like. Are you facing death? Jesus did for you. He came into the world. He's with us. He's the the one who saves us. As we turn to the table and proclaim that, let's pray before we sing and commune in the supper. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, you've revealed your glory and grace in Christ. What mercy has been revealed for us and we are grateful we want to receive we want to believe and because you've made a way by coming into the world help us believe in the name of Jesus Christ our king and savior this we pray in Jesus name amen